everyone. Today I'd like to invite you to take a little trip through history again. I would love to have a look at a really fascinating creation myth from a civilization that has long since disappeared. And maybe you're having an idea of where we're going, considering the map and what's right at the center. We're going to have a look at Mesopotamia and specifically Enuma Elish, the creation myth from Babylon. And if the words don't ring a bell, if you've never heard of Enuma Elish, you are probably nonetheless familiar with some of the concepts in it because they have survived in somewhat different form in the Genesis. So if you have ever read the Bible or the Torah, you've probably read some ideas that may have been inspired by Enuma Elish. So, the place where Enuma Elish was created is right here. Mesopotamia in modern-day Iraq. This is part of the Fertile Crescent. So here following the rivers north and then across through Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine and Israel. Some people also include um, Egypt into this sort of cultural sphere at the time. Settlements in Mesopotamia date back probably like 10,000 years and the first civilization that we know of are the Sumerians. They settled down, they had agriculture, so they produced crop which both meant that they had to stay put in one place um, but it also allowed them to build cities that were defended against the environment. They began writing texts, they were literate, they had a script. So all huge inventions at the time. And some of their oldest texts are about 5,000 years old. So they might have been there um, longer and the texts might be older too. It's just that we don't know what we haven't found yet in excavations. One of the famous stories, for example, of the Sumerians is the Gilgamesh epic that you might have heard of. Gilgamesh was a famous hero who was immortalized as a constellation in the stars. And we still look at the same constellation, but we call it Orion. The Sumerians settled, for example, here in Uruk, along the Euphrates. Mesopotamia generally refers to the land between the rivers. So that's the Euphrates on the one side. It's sort of making its way up through Syria and then all the way to near Erzurum and we have a second 
ever up here that goes all the way close to Yerevan and Mount Ararat. And the Tigris on the other side here passes Baghdad, Mosul, and starts here in here, Lake Van. So if we look at the geography, both rivers come from the Armenian highlands. You have here Anatolia, you have the Iranian plateau, the Caucasus region that we looked at recently. And you can see here by the change of the color that where the rivers flow, you get down towards sea level. So there's a lot of water coming from the mountains down into the Persian Gulf. And the ancient cities were built along the rivers. So you have Ur, Uruk, here's Babylon. You have Assur and Nineveh. These are all either along the Tigris or the Euphrates. For agriculture, it was very important to have access to water. The further away from the river that you move, the more difficult it is to grow crops. And generally what was very important in the area was to prepare the soil to develop a system of irrigation that meant that your crops would grow, but also to wash out the water from the soil. And as you can imagine, particularly in spring, you had a danger of floods as the snow was melting. So there was a big topic in Mesopotamia. And if you're wondering why there aren't any cities further down here where you have the confluence of Tigris and Euphrates, that's because the coastline looked a little different at the time. You can see this here. This is the coastline that you had back then. And places like Ur were actually very, very close to it. the white and green area is where you have the Sumerian city-states around four and a half thousand years ago and they weren't really together in one empire or one larger structure they were independent city-states sometimes there were attempts to create larger empires but they usually didn't last very long um, and that's because the area in between the cities was somewhat difficult to traverse and brought some dangers with it. One ruler who managed to establish a larger structure was Hammurabi. Let's see. Here, the red circle. This is the old Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi. So you can see here, 
include Susa, goes all the way up to the Assyrian part in northern Mesopotamia, includes Nineveh and Assur. And the former Sumerian cities. So who are the people who lived in this area? The Sumerians were there first, or at least as far as we know. There are some indications in their language that there were other languages spoken prior to them. For example, you can tell by some of the names of the time, but we don't know much about them. And we also don't know whether the Sumerian language was related to any other languages in the region. We haven't found any relatives yet, so it's considered an isolate language. The Babylonians and Assyrians, however, spoke Semitic languages. We've already looked at those. Arabic or Hebrew, for example, are Semitic languages. Nonetheless, particularly the Babylonians, also used Sumerian. So they used both languages for a long time. And they also learned the older language, they translated texts, they used Sumerian, for example, in religious contexts or in law. So it was a language that was still considered in high regard. The more common language that was spoken at the time, though, was Akkadian. And that too is a language that existed for a long time. Um, we know that it was still used in a religious ceremony around 2000 years ago. So that's a long time. Babylon too, by the way, might be a city that you associate with a very, very distant past and a city that fell long before kind of our history began. But we do have um, a note that indicates it was still inhabited about a thousand years ago. But back then it was just called the small village of Babel. It's hard to imagine then that at one point in time it was probably the biggest city on earth with up to 200,000 inhabitants. If you compare that to Uruk, which was one of the most important cities prior to Babylon's rise, it had something between 50 to 80,000 people at its height, which is still a massive uh, settlement, all things considered. So Babylon rose to power under Hammurabi. The empire might not have lasted very long, but Babylon nonetheless remained a very important seat. And it's also one of the really important places in the Enuma Elish. The name, by the way, translates to Gate of the Gods. And that gives us an idea of its central role in religion at the time.
We know of Enuma Elish because it was written down on clay tablets using cuneiform, which looks like this. And we know that a lot of people were literate at the time and learned how to read and write. The first time these tablets with Enuma Elish were found was in the middle of the 19th century. Not in Babylon, but when an old library in Nineveh was excavated. Altogether there are seven tablets with about a thousand lines. Most of which have been found, sometimes also in different versions, some in Sumerian, some in Akkadian. Only bits of Tablet 5 are missing. So there's a gap in the text, a lacuna. We don't really know how old the text is. It might date from the time of Hammurabi. It might be older. And what the Enuma Elish is, is a creation myth. It tells us how the world was created, how the gods were created, and how humans came into it. to the first words of the epic and it translates to when on high when on high the heaven had not been named firm ground below had not been called by name not but primordial Apsu Tebigeta and Mumutiamat she who bore them all the waters commingling as a single body no reed but had been matted, no marshland had appeared. When no gods whatever had been brought into being, unnamed, their destinies yet undetermined, then it was that the gods were emerged from within them. Lachmu and Lachamu came forth, were called by name before they had grown in age and stature. Anja and Kisha were shaped more mighty than the others, and so on. So what it tells us here is, this is before creation took place, but it's not that nothing existed, rather it was chaos, there was no order to the matter that was there, and there were two beings, Apsu, a male principle, and Tiamat, a female principle. They were identified with bodies of water, with fresh water and salt water. And again, if we look at the map, you have salt water here and fresh water here. 
So water without a doubt was a big part of life in Mesopotamia. And they stay commingled as a single body. They created their offspring. More deities like Lahmu and Lahamu, Ansha and Kisha, then Anu, Nudimut, and so on. So there was uh, there were children and children's children and children's children. And one of the important uh, children was Marduk, the brightest and strongest and uh, best of them all, so to say. And as you can imagine, when there's lots of children around, it gets quite loud. And Apsu and Tiamat started complaining because they couldn't find rest anymore. They wanted peace and calm. And there was this giant family um, and even more chaos ensued, so to say. And what Apsu then decided was the best course of action was to kill his offspring. Tiamat wasn't really on board with it. She did not want that. But Apsu decided to um, carry his plans out nonetheless. However, their offspring heard of his plan. Ea, the all-wise, decided to take action first. He made a spell and put Apsu into a deep sleep. And as he was sleeping, he killed him first. He slew him. And this is a um, theme that's going to appear again. He then turned the carcass of Apsu into a dwelling place. Sounds a bit gruesome, but apparently in Mesopotamia, that was um, quite a normal part of mythology. So the offspring was safe, Apsu was slain, and at that point, Tiamat heard of it and became enraged. She decided to take revenge. And she created an army of monsters. Um, she had Kinsu on her side, who wanted to lead the army into battle. And they looked so frightening that none of the other gods dared go up against her. Tiamat is not just identified with bodies of water, but she's often also depicted as like a dragon or water serpent. So she looks like a large monster. And eventually the other gods went up to Marduk and asked Marduk to go up against Tiamat. And Marduk said, well, all right, I'll do it if you make me the king of the pantheon, if I win. And they agreed. And then a fierce battle ensues. Marduk brings with him the winds. A floodstorm, his mighty weapon. 
He mounted the stone chariot, irresistible and terrifying. He harnessed and yoked it to a team of four, the killer, the relentless, the trampler, the swift, sharp with their poison-bearing teeth. He set his face towards the raging Tiamat. He held a spell between his lips. They strove in single combat, locked in conflict. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her. He let loose in her face the evil wind which followed behind. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove in the evil wind and she could not close her lips. As the fierce winds encumbered her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released an arrow, it tore her belly, cut through her inside, splitting her heart. Having subdued her, he blotted out her life. So Marduk slays Tiamat. And what he does then is also what happened with Apsu. He splits the carcass in half and then extends one part to create the sky and hold back her waters. And the other part becomes the land and again holds back the waters. So the idea is that the area that's inhabited is surrounded by water. And theoretically in the sky you could open the gates and then the water comes in and floods the land which is what happened in later stories. He then goes on to create the calendar, basically. He creates the constellations across the sky. He creates all living things. And eventually he decides, you know what? This is kind of a lot of work. And we as gods should have someone to do the work for us. And that's when he decides to create humanity. He fetches Kinshu, who went into battle for Tiamat, takes his blood, mixes it with clay, and that's how humans were created. And Marduk and the gods found some calm and quiet, which is what Apsu and Tiamat wanted in the first place. The final tablets then conclude with praise to Marduk, who was the most important god in the pantheon. And the city god of Babylon. So what the Enuma Elish does it is not just explains how the gods and the world and humans were created, it also tells everyone else that Babylon is the most important city and its god is all the way on top of the pantheon, the most important god among all of them. And like I said, the tablets were first found in Nineveh, which is in North Mesopotamia. 
not in South like Babylon. So that gives us an idea that the story was very widely known. It was probably recited every year in spring during a festival called Akitu, um, which was celebrated for 12 days at the beginning of the year, probably during the time of the spring floods. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You have the story of a mighty warrior god holding back the waters and creating fertile land. We also know that the Akito festival was celebrated all the way into the Roman period. It was even introduced in the Roman Empire at some point in Italy. And by the way, it's being celebrated again during the Assyrian Renaissance in the 1960s. People started celebrating Akito on April the 1st, just for one day though, and it was a little more lighthearted than the original 12-day ceremony. Now, I said some of the concepts might be familiar to you from the Bible. When we look at the very first line again, when on high the heaven had not been named. The similarity would have been obvious to anyone speaking Akkadian and Hebrew. But of course, now that we have the English translations, we're quite far removed from that. But you could translate the original Hebrew in a similar way, where it doesn't say in the beginning, but when in the beginning God began creating. So you have the same grammatical structure that opens the text, when on high the heaven, when God started creating. So there's already um, a callback to the Enuma Elish. You also have the same idea that God is already there. You already have an entity prior to creation. In the Enuma Elish, it's two gods, a male and a female principle. In the Torah, it's one god. But it follows the same logic in that creation is not creating matter out of nothing, but rather creating order in chaos. And it all also kind of follows the same steps. You have day and night, sky and land, vegetation, you have sun and moon, fish and birds, and eventually animals and humans. In the Genesis, there's also a really interesting line about how the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And now the wind sweeping over the face of the waters, that does sound like the winds of Marduk that he released on Tiamat to fill her and immobilize her. In fact, the face of the deep, deep actually is written without an article. It's the face of deep. It's a proper name. It's not a description. And the Hebrew word for deep 
is actually the same word as Tiamat. Again, Akkadian and Hebrew are both Semitic languages. So in the Semitic language, the similarity would be really obvious. So it is the face of Tiamat, this watery being that's being pushed back. There are some important differences though. Enuma Elish is a bit of a gruesome story, but that's not the case in Genesis. In Genesis, God creates and says, this is good. In fact, God says this over and over again at the end of every day, creation is good. There are no battles, there's no gore. It's something that's good. In fact, God also creates for humanity. They are provided for with fruit trees, for example. They are told what they can eat. And they are given agency. Again, here in Enuma Elish, when on high the heaven had not been named, firm ground below had not been called by name, there's the same logic that naming something means creating and means ruling, creating order. In the Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve to give names to the creation. So there's a really important difference in how humanity is imagined in these two texts. In the Enuma Elish, Humanity is made to serve the gods, so the gods can rest. But in the Genesis, humanity is provided for, is created in the image of God, and is giving agency. And, of course, we don't know if the Israelites, when they were in Babylon, heard the stories that were told, that were recited during the festivals and thought, no, we can tell this differently, we can tell a better story, we can subvert it a little. Or maybe it was an even older story that had just developed in different forms in Babylon and Israel. But the similarities are quite astounding and I think so are the differences. And it kind of makes me really appreciate Genesis. I think it's a beautiful text and a beautiful change to this fascinating tale of Enuma Elish. And quite touching, really, when you think about what it tells you as a listener who looks at these sacred texts. If you are interested in the story and the similarities, I will link a podcast down below in the description so you can listen to it in detail. But I think for today, that's been a lot of info. And I hope you're very sleepy by now, or maybe already drifting off. Either way, thank you so much for spending some time with me and listening to the story. I'll see you again next week. Until then. <laughs>